Thanks for downloading show 96 of the C-Suite podcast, the first of two episodes produced in partnership with PR Week that we're recording at their Pharmacoms conference taking place in Canary Wharf, London. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and I'm going to be chatting to a number of the speakers from today's conference, which we hope will provide a real flavour and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed. And to kick off this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Royal, Communications Director for UK Healthcare and Life Sciences at IBM. Rachel is taking part in a panel session at the conference on the topic of what patient centricity means for communications. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the show. Uh, Before we talk about your work at IBM, prior to your role there, you spent a good few years across a number of communications roles within the NHS. How much does that help you in terms of influencing your new colleagues about patient centricity? I've had a really um, brilliant career in the sense that I've had the benefit of working with some fantastic professionals at London Ambulance Service, the Department of Health, Cabinet Office, and also as an executive director um, for an acute hospital trust. And I think one of the things that working in the NHS absolutely does in all of those different organisations is it gives you a sense of why healthcare, why are you doing it and why is it important. When you're working at London Ambulance Service and you go out with an ambulance crew and you get to visit someone's home and you get to see their moment of crisis and how the NHS actually helps them it can make a massive difference and you know those kind of memories stay with you I think for a long time throughout your career and when I worked for the Department of Health and you're thinking about implementing policy and you're discussing how to implement policy again having that kind of frontline experience and that frontline perspective being involved at the very heart of the NHS and being very involved in seeing patients walk through hospitals that can really benefit I think in the advice that you kind of give later on in your in your career. So how do you then relate that to working within, you know, such a huge organization like IBM? For me, one of the key roles for a communications professional is helping to translate what's going on in the outside world into organisations. And I think sometimes organisations can be quite insular and we can look internally. And, you know, what I see as my role in understanding the healthcare landscape and understanding the NHS and how it works is helping my colleagues within IBM to understand that, helping them to understand how technology can really benefit patients and then also how that technology can kind of get deployed within within the health service to the benefits of patients and what 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 need is it trying to fix so as opposed to talking about things from a technology perspective and being very tech focused and how we talk about things trying to um, help our organization to understand how that might be perceived from the public's point of view or from the workforce so from the NHS workforce's perspective and how it's going to be implemented once it's actually in a hospital or we're, we're working out in a, in a trust or in a, in a GP surgery. Well, let's build on that then. How do you actually get patients involved in the ongoing development of technology, you know, let a company like IBM, for example, supplies to the healthcare industry? So, so, so for me, there's three big ways. Um, the first is around governance. So great communication for me is about leadership. It isn't just about kind of the communications process at the end. It's about how you do business and how you involve patients and how you engage the public in the governance of what you do. So to give an example, um, at one of the hospital trusts, when we used to look at safety, rather than just have the safety meetings and look at how we needed to improve things just with the clinicians and just with the workforce, we brought patients into those meetings. We involved patients in the governance of of those meetings and in the project meetings. The other big area for technology is is user-centered design, so how we involve users in um, the design process for a new product or for a new service. 
one of the things I think we need to think more about as an industry is not just user-centered design, but then also what information we're using. So often patients' information or patients' data, the users might be academics or they might be researchers, but what we need to do more of is we need to involve patients in that whole process. And then the third area really is around kind of partnerships. We don't operate in a vacuum. I don't think any big organisation does. So how do you work with the NHS? How do you work with the charity sector? How do we work with the likes of uh, National Voices? There are organisations like the Wellcome Trust, understanding patient data. So all of those areas and all of those different aspects of patient and public engagement and involvement are really, really important. And I think there is a lot to learn and a lot to translate into the technology industry as well. This conference was billed as taking place at a time when communications professionals in the pharmaceutical industry are faced with numerous challenges and you know, in, in the conference uh, literature they, they listed a whole load of them that included negative perception of the industry, a healthcare system under unprecedented pressure, new channels changing the public's access to healthcare and increasing pressure to demonstrate ROI. Do, do any of those resonate with you and if so how are you um, responding? I think all of those things resonate with me and I think that's part of the reason why many of us choose to work in healthcare. Healthcare it is increasing in demand. Patients have more complex needs. However, technology for me can play a huge part in helping to kind of transform that experience um, for patients. However, both um, the pharma industry and healthcare communications it, it isn't ever stationary, it's constantly in motion and it's constantly moving. And I think part of our role as communication professionals is to understand how trends are changing, how things are changing, to listen to those changes, whether positive or negative, and to play them back into the organisation. So the organisations that we work for can change the way they work or change the way that they operate to respond to the trust challenges that we have. And it isn't just pharma, the whole of society, whether or not it's politicians, whether or not it's media, whether or not it's public relations industry in and of itself. There is a huge trust crisis going on in society generally. So are we that dissimilar to other industries? Probably not. Many other industries are probably having exactly the same conversations about what can we do better to build trust. And the best way that we can build trust is to do better business with integrity, following an ethical framework and communicate well and listen to the patients and listen to the citizen. Brilliant. Um, I just want to finish off by asking about your work as chair of the Charles Institute of Public Relations uh, Health Group. What does that involve and are there any initiatives or, or campaigns that we can expect from it this year? So the Chartered Institute of Public Relations, we kicked off the health group last year and it's brilliant. We've got a couple of people attending the conference over the next two days who are part of the committee as well. The group was set up to basically try and help provide a service and provide benefits for communication professionals that are working in the health sector. So whether or not that's charity, whether or not that's pharma, or whether or not that's the NHS, and to try and help support them in terms of and in relation to their professional development. The big campaign that we've been working on last year and that will remain a huge focus for this year is the State of Profession Survey explained that mental health is a huge issue for public relations professionals. And I'm very much of the view that if we can't look after the people that are working in the industry, um, you know, we you know we've, we, we really need to change what we do and make sure that we've got a workforce and we've got the best talent 
and we're caring for them in an appropriate and a kind of responsible way. So we've been doing a lot of work with colleagues to focus on mental health and to help support people on mental health. So we've got one or two, hopefully, announcements that will come up on mental health this year. The other area of focus is going to be our events programme and to properly get our events programme kicked off. So we're hoping to do a series of breakfasts with healthcare journalists. And I think, again, certainly one of the big um, strategic things that we need to look at is how can we help people who work in communication roles in the NHS, people who work in communication roles in pharma and in charity to break down those boundaries and to better understand each other so that we can work kind of more collaboratively together across the industry to serve the people in the UK to help them to live healthier and better lives. That's brilliant. Uh, Rachel Royal, thanks for kicking off this episode and enjoy the uh, rest of the conference. Thank you. So next to join us is Christian Marcou, uh, Senior Vice President, Global Communications at the biopharmaceutical group Ipsen. Christian is over for the event from Paris and is about to go on stage to talk about why corporate relevance is the new reputation. Uh, thanks for joining us, Christian. Uh, uh, can you explain the concept of relevance in this context? Yeah, in a nutshell, basically relevance is a way to measure what your audiences are, are, are saying about you, are they engaging with you. And uh, basically, you go to those that are very active out there by, uh, through social listings versus uh, polling passive people that, you know, have an impression of you but don't, don't do anything about it. So for us, relevance provides us with clear, soundproof insights to build upon a communications plan and, and really activate your, your, your brand. And so what would you say it takes to be relevant in the pharmaceutical industry? takes quite a bit of listening. Um, relevance is basically where uh, um, your objectives or, or your uh, key messaging will match uh, uh, what your audience uh, wants to hear and is looking to. Um, so it's that and what you call that, the, 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 the intersection between what they want to know, what they want to hear, what they want to learn more about and what you have to tell them. So it's matching both groups' agenda and, and really that's, that's where it's that's where it happens. Now, you're about to talk about a relevant study that Ipsen uh, recently commissioned across uh, three sectors, France, uh, the US and the UK. What I wanted to ask was, first of all, why did you do that? But then also, how did you, how did you actually go about running it? All right, so it's a bit of a long answer, but basically I joined Ipsen back in uh, the summer of 2018. Um, the group was halfway in a major transformation going from a group that's 90-year-old, solely focused pretty much on uh, consumer healthcare and basically turning into a biotech uh, uh, and, and kind of having a, a, a cure of, of youth at 90-year-old. At the group was consciously uh, applying two sets of key messages, one internally, one externally, and the discrepancy between the two level of speeches uh, was somewhat shocking to me. Externally, it was resonating well with the street, with the financial community, and it was well reflected in the press. But internally, you couldn't find that fil rouge, that, that, that red thread that would kind of link everything together and, and really speak to the employees, speak to, to, to other also stakeholders externally. So what we did is we commissioned this uh, uh, relevant study to really figure out what was re resonating with who and, uh, uh, and really uh, uh, build a comms plan around it that was not just based on gut feeling, but that was actually based on data-driven insights. What we uh, um, took out of it was the need to really adjust our channel planning and uh, really broaden our, our, our sets of messaging and our narrative so that it, it impacted people 
patients and the business as well, and, and not just reflect the business uh, aspects of what was done with the financial community. So you mentioned you, you joined the business at, at the summer of um, 2018. What timescale were you looking at in, in this analysis then? So the beauty of the <coughs> relevance index is that it can be done retrospectively. Um, so when we did our first year, we actually did the year before, so we were able to compare from the get-go 2018 to 2019, the calendar years. And that really um, gave us a bit of a, a soundbite as to where we started in the middle uh, and then kind of the progress that could be achieved over the course of a year to set expectations in the years moving forward, right? Because the, the kind of the, the caveat is that with, with this tool, it's somewhat new, so we don't want to overpromise. And basically by going back one year, we were able to, to kind of calculate and, and manage expectations with the C-suite internally. And, and were there specific channels where you're looking for those conversations? It's pretty much it's social uh, listening, so it's anything online. Um, and then it's mainly uh, the trick is to customize your market segmentation uh, and make sure that you go after your relevant audiences. So in our case, it's three therapeutic areas. It's oncology, neuroscience, and rare diseases. So that's where <clears throat> we really want to focus and customize the relevance index. So we're not going to be listening to the folks that are talking about diabetes. It has no relevancy to, to us. And then uh, beyond that, it's the financial community, it's the HCP community, it's the patient community, and, and, and whatnot. And, and specific messages that you were looking for? Sure. So obviously the transformation journey was, was a key one. But beyond that, um, the big, big insight we got is that we actually had lost track, or not lost track, but lost contact with HCPs mainly. They're super important to us. That said, the focus on transformation really brought our discourse um, really out to the financial mainly and, and the media community. And we were kind of losing sight of, of you know, our number one stakeholder, which are HCPs in this case. And so what's the, uh, what's the next step for you, um, you know, following the outcomes from this? So we built our 2020 plans uh, out of that uh, data and really we reshift the focus to patient community and HCPs community. And <clears throat> in terms of channel planning, um, instead of going with our gut to put, you know, paid behind the big announcements, the deals, the M&As, the that, this and that, we're really investing our, our paid budget on the items that are quote-unquote less sexy or, or, or less uh, news-driven so that we maintain a, a, a steady news flow and a steady share of voice with our communities out there. So following on from all those learnings, I'm assuming this is something you'd recommend to any organization, really? Absolutely not. No, I'm just kidding. Yes, of course. <laughs> the word of advice I would put with that is that one can come at it and, and see it as like a dashboard to assess a year and, and, and really take a pause and a snapshot like you would do with a reputation survey. Um, for me, I would, I would, the word of advice I would give any other communicators would be to inform your comms plan from, from, from this and kind of put under the radar or, 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 or have, have it informed for, for year one, have it inform your comms plan. And then at year two, when you can compare apples to apples, to uh, bring it to the C-suite and, and establish it as a dashboard to measure your impact year over year. But if you start with this as a dashboard and you assess your performance out of nowhere and you move from a reputation kind of metrics to this, the adaptation, the, the adoption uh, might be a bit more challenging. That's great. Well, um, thank you so much for, for sharing all that with us, uh, Christian, and uh, bon chance with your talk. Merci beaucoup. 
So I'm now joined by Avril Fudge, Communications and PR Lead uh, for Amina at Accord Healthcare. Um, Avril has just finished speaking about informing and equipping employees to become brand ambassadors. Uh, thanks for joining us, um, Avril. Why is that topic so important to you? I think for me it's around equipping our employees to tell your story of a brand. Um, at Accord we have quite a mixed uh, base of employees. We have the UK sites and the Amina sites. Um, Accord did a major acquisition about three years ago of 800 people in North Devon and you know it was about bringing them on the journey with us I really am passionate about people I believe that you know people can help you shape your brand purpose and story and they should have a voice in an organization was that a challenge in terms of was there a different culture from those that you'd um, taken on board? I think so I think it's probably important to know that Accord are one of the fastest growing pharma companies in Europe um, Three years ago, we had, um, you know, a handful of people. Now we've got over 2,000. So because of that growth, there's lots of different levels of employee engagement, employee motivation. We have some of our European sites that are really small, two or three employees. And we have North Devon, which is our biggest UK site, 800. So a real mix match, actually, of, of um, people that work at Accord. And what we wanted to do was have a brand that everyone could engage with and take them on the new a core journey rather than it being legacy. Yeah, and so when you're bringing um, employees on as, as brand ambassadors, how easy is that to achieve within an industry that has to take account of compliance? I, I think it, it's you know important to know that we took compliance with us on the journey right from the outset when we looked at our new brand. We were very you know conscious that we needed to have compliance as part of that. And what we've actually done is we've employed some 25 different brand ambassadors right across Amina in the UK, with compliance being at, at the same table and shaping the brand together. It's been a challenge, and I think the major challenge for us is how quickly we can do this um, you know people have day jobs people um, are very engaged with the brand but you know we have to let them do their day jobs at the same time so compliance has always had a head at our table they've been on the journey with us and we're really vital actually especially in the early days with how we could shape what the accord story was and I think added to that we're not talking about products and um, we're talking about a corporate brand purpose which is much more about our behaviors and what we believe in rather than the products we give to patients later on. So talk us through how you go about equipping your colleagues then for digital communications in this area. I think never underestimate the power of a good guideline and toolkit and policy. Um, you sound like you've written a few. Right, right <laughs> from day one. Um, don't assume. Um, don't assume that because you work in comms and PR that people are going to understand the guidelines. We sat down with compliance um, right at the start and, and really unearthed actually what we wanted to do, what we wanted to say, what we could say and all of our brand ambassadors are fully trained in, in the code. Um, and part of that is about giving them the accord story, so reframing it for them in what they can say and giving them guidelines about what they can't say. Um, and that's really, really important to get that right. In, in terms of the digital and, and social channels, obviously before this interview I was doing a little bit of sort of background research. You're, you're on LinkedIn, but you're not on Twitter as, as, a, as the brand. Was, there a, a, was that a conscious decision on that? Um, it, it, is part of our decision-making process. I think it's probably important to know that we're 
our brand was relaunched last year. We're still going through the brand refresh. We're also, as we've talked about, the brand ambassadors do have a day job. Um, I'm a believer in you get the best engagement out of people to help you do things when it becomes a passion of theirs rather than I have to do this and I have to go through that. So Twitter is something we're looking at, but I don't foresee it being this year. I, I see it as us making sure we've got the accord story right and that those brand ambassadors are supported and have everything they need and Twitter will come probably, you know, next year. And so what response have you seen from employees in terms of wanting to be involved and, and also what results are they generating? I think from the start we worked really closely with our exec team and um, we didn't want employees as brand ambassadors that were yes men. We actually wanted people that would challenge us and people that were living the brand every day. So right from that perspective I guess we took the people that we really wanted um, to help us tell our record story and one of the biggest things actually and one of the biggest satisfactions I've had personally is the sense of collaboration that's come from it. One of our key messages was around one accord we're not called Spain, we're not called Greece, we're not called Barnes, but we're one company now and we have to behave like that. So these brand ambassadors were great at just collaborating with the rest of our network and pulling people in actually that from a PR and comms perspective or even from an exec perspective, we wouldn't have been able to pull in. So it's a work in progress. Well, thanks for that. Um, but before you go, just one last question in terms of the conference as a whole. What's been your key takeout from, um, from the couple of days here? I think for me, it's having that sense of networking. I think it's really valuable, especially when you work in pharma comms, because it can be quite a lonely field to have you know, that, that sense of, of the speakers, the calibre of, of people that are sharing their experience. Um, and it's a fantastic networking event. So please do come next year. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that, Avril. And uh, we are back after this break. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csweeppodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favorite podcast apps. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. So I'm now joined by Charlotte Davis, Head of Communications uh, Healthcare for Merck, um, David Flynn, Head of Public Relations at Roche, and Christine Kelly, Head of Communications and Patient Advocacy UK at Novartis. Uh, the three of them have just come off a stage on a panel discussion uh, discussing innovation and regulation, how to master the balancing act of communications in pharma. Uh, Christine, uh, how did the session go and what were the sort of key highlights that came out? I think the session went really well. I think the, the people on the panel all brought very different um, views and perspectives and I think but some key themes I mean obviously from the title you just read I think a key theme was about creating a culture of creativity but also balancing that with how do you um, execute a very creative campaign within a highly regulated industry as well as you know at the end of the day we're trying to reach patients and which who are you know each one is a very individual and they like to receive their information in different ways and potentially with different messages so how do you make sure that whatever creativity and, um, and fantastic content you're developing is actually going to reach the audience that you're intending to and, and make an impact. Well, well let's uh, pick up on some of those those um, areas. So, David, let's come to you. How, how do you uh, encourage that, that culture of creativity, you know, specifically within pharma? Um, well, one of the key things is actually one level actually is bringing people from outside pharma into it. So people who are naturally, I was going to say, more creative than us healthcare comms folk, but some people have a different perspective. They have a different way of understanding and engaging with audiences and using their expertise, using their questions, you know, bringing them in so they can just 
just constantly say, why don't we do this? Why don't we try this? But at the same time, it's also being very clear and challenging ourselves and saying, actually, there's a great opportunity here in the sense of you know, uh, patients, the public, the wider different stakeholder groups they want to engage with. Um, you know, the challenge is we have to be creative. We have to push ourselves more because otherwise our message is not going to cut through. So I think to a degree it's, it's about really just bringing sort of external sort of talent in, harnessing that and using that sort of spirit of trying things differently. But at the same time internally, understanding that actually this is all very key to have tangible commercial benefits to the business as well. It's not doing it for the sake of it. Charlotte, you've got something to add there. Yeah, no, exactly. I, com- I completely agree. I, th- I think a couple of things really that that sprung out during our discussion for me. Um, one is that uh, I think coming to the consumer point, one thing that we can learn from the consumer world is how very often um, they're much better at us than having a very strong single-minded proposition that's really rooted in insight. And you only have to look at a lot of consumer campaigns you know, in the mainstream to see this. Whereas in pharma, quite often we we love to kind of try and say everything. Um, and I think there's a real lesson there that actually if we, if we try and focus more um, on one thing, we can probably say it better. Um, and the tone of voice and language, I think it's one thing, often innovation, we think it's got to be something really, you know, really whizzy, but actually something as simple as changing your language and talking in a really simple way can be quite innovative. That's one thing that Merck's trying to do is to really look at how we how we communicate, the kind of language we use, the imagery we use to make the company much more accessible, much more human, and to reflect our understanding of the patient. And um, I think that's you know something I'd love to see the whole industry doing more because I think it does break down a lot of those barriers. You know, we, we, we get lost in our acronyms and our heavy language, and a lot of that comes from the NHS as well, which doesn't help, but th- th- there's more we can do in that area. I could completely agree because, I mean, for, for an industry, we're data-driven. Yeah, that's the thing that underpins who we are and what we do, and sometimes it's easy to hide behind the data mm. and actually you know that's the thing that we need to get yeah. across but actually ultimately what does the data mean to a human being okay. out in the, in the world yeah. that's key and i think i mean going back to charles point about looking at other industries if you think about the history of communications and pharmaceuticals i think we were one of the last industries to actually think about asking our customer what their experience is like and what they want to have and, and how they're interacting with us i mean you know you consistently find in hospitality or in any other consumer always asking like what is the what is the the person who's buying the product want and yet pharma never really asked that until very recently so i think getting the you know nowadays there's much more about getting the patient involved whether that's getting them to help co-create campaigns or helping them or testing messages out on them or asking them even whether getting them involved in clinical trials early but involving them in that conversation Mm. is is something that pharma really needs to get better at doing. And actually, I think you can see lots of examples now, of, particularly within communications. A few years ago, probably the only other external stakeholder our function would engage with is probably really patient groups, whereas now a lot of the product um, campaigns that we're doing are co-created with, we're working directly with the HSNs or you know, other NHS partners or you know, individual, you know, I did a whole programme with nurses. Um, so those sort of barriers are, are blurring in terms of what we as communications and the stakeholders we engage engage with quite rightly and I think we're getting much better at actually going and and listening to people and finding out what are the problems that they're trying to solve what are the things they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis rather than just going with what we want to say whereas we were kind of very much I think you know historically quite broadcast focused yeah um, whereas now it's much more of a kind of a two-way street and as you say it comes all it comes back down to co-creation really the way you you get that genuine insight and then you can do something meaningful with it that's 
truly of benefit. I'm very much enjoying just taking a back seat here and letting you three carry on. This is really good. But what, one of the things I wanted to bring up, though, is how do you, all these things that you're talking about, how do you then execute that in an industry that obviously has to deal with compliance? David, let's come to you. Would, it, like we, I've said on the panel, actually, one of the things we have is um, that, you know, the, nowhere in the code does it say you can't be creative. Um, and actually, because there are enough gray areas in the code, sometimes that becomes a cultural thing. And actually, for us, it's, it's also being very clear on what the code refers to, because obviously it's about products. But beyond products, actually, when you're talking about wider issues about the company, actually, you've got to send them in a free reign. You can, to a degree, do what you want from a corporate level. So it's, for us, it's about really sort of looking at the key things and challenging that and saying, actually, we can do this. We can do that. And actually, sort of within Roche, I mean, we, we're, we're having this sort of culture of transformation anyway because the organization is wanting to change. And we're almost riding on the back of that. So actually, to a degree, my, my role feels a lot easier than it was two years ago where you're constantly sort of almost trying to sort of break through a barrier. Whereas at the moment, the barriers are being removed in front of us as a team and going, actually, yes, let's do something different. And actually, let's make sure that creativity is embedded in who we are and what we do. Christine? Well, I think that the other thing with with the regulations here, I mean, as, as probably your listeners can hear, I'm American, and and you know, coming from a country where there's a lot, a lot of a looser regulation. I mean, you pretty much get bombarded with commercials and print ads as soon as you as you come into the country. I think that actually one of the reasons I came to the UK to do healthcare communications here was because there's a a lot more question about what's appropriate to engage patients with. Because, you know, when I, when I tell people what I do, part of the reason I came into this is because I think about my mom, who will, like, go and take her neighbor's antibiotics. And she's the one who's seeing these commercials on TV, and yet she doesn't even, you know, think twice about taking somebody else's medicine. And so I think, you know, the regulations are there as a positive to help us, you know, think about how are we actually appropriately engaging with patients and helping them become a better advocate for themselves with their physician. And if you think about it that way, and, and, of course, you want to push the boundary and be creative, but as long as you come at that with a positive intent and think about what the true objective is and how you activate that patient, then I think, you know, thinking about the regulations is something that's positive, but also how do you, how do you kind of move ahead with that? And in addition, I mean, we talk about us evolving, but the ABPI is also evolving. I mean, they're going to do a session on, on how, digital, how their regulations around digital communication are moving. So I think we're all trying to keep up with how do we engage patients appropriately and the public appropriately in, in this kind of new world and with all the different new communication channels. And I think, as well, I think as we all, we'd all talked about, the importance of engaging early with all your internal compliance, medical, everybody else. I think we've all been there where you've, you know, comes with a great idea and then it ends up being so watered down it's not really any good anymore but I find that if you if you actually really talk it through early with them and and try and problem solve and say this is what we want to do is this if we can't do this what can we do how can we do it and I think the other thing I always encourage people to do is to really know the code inside out because quite often I've successfully challenged internally when people have said you can't do that and there's there's a big difference between you can't do it because of the code or just because you perhaps feel you're not entirely sure about the idea um so really encouraging people to challenge because i think if the intent is right um there's usually a way to to find a solution particularly if it's 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 rooted in, in genuine insight and you've got the support of third parties for an idea 
And it's sometimes also using a Trojan horse, as we call it. I mean, the, when, when we uh, did the Lad Bible campaign a few years ago internally, a lot of the uh, companies going, no, we can't do this, we can't do this, we can't do this. And actually, using, using your point, actually, it wasn't a code thing, it was a cultural thing. And we were able to get the campaign through Thankfully, in the way it was intended at the start, it didn't get watered down too much. And actually, the success of the campaign suddenly opened people's eyes internally. Went, hang on, this is all right. We didn't get a clause to. We we're all fine. We're all fine. No one's, no one's sort of running off with their heads on fire within the organisation. And actually, immediately now, it's sort of lit a spark. People going, well, how do we do that again? How do we do more of that? And so it's just good having almost one example saying, let's just try it and then be prepared to push the boundary and then see how it goes. But I think, Charlotte, you brought up a really good point at the start of the conversation, and, and, I, and David, you had mentioned even on the panel that all of that was also rooted in data. Yeah. But you could say that that Lad Bible campaign, the reason you wanted to do that was because you knew from, from market insights that that was where your customers were going. And so it wasn't like you were just pulling an idea out of We went in for the sake of it, no, not at all. So I think having that data around your customers and where they go and what they want to hear is really crucial when you're having those discussions internally. Just taking a a slightly different angle, uh, talking about creativity, innovation, do you take inspiration from outside the healthcare and pharma industry, looking at any other industries, Christine? I used to to work in the hospitality industry, so I follow it really closely. And there was recently an article um, asking if PR is, is even needed for restaurants anymore. And, and with the crux of it being that the, the way that people kind of look for recommendations and, and who they find as credible is changing. It's no longer, you know, the restaurant reviewers from your local paper. It's no longer the Michelin Guide, which are all being, you know, there's a lot more distrust. It's much more um, kind of restaurant to customer and, and even customer to customer. And I think it's, it's an interesting challenge to the way we've all thought about how you do communications and why I don't think... We're there just yet in the pharmaceutical industry. I do think that we're thinking more and more about how do we engage the patient or the public directly in a, in a compliant and regulated way to have those discussions. And it not even just going through patient groups anymore because a lot of patients are their own advocates instead of going with a group. So how do, you, how do, you, how do we expand how we engage to not just go through third parties anymore but start to try to have that one-on-one dialogue. And Charlotte, you even mentioned, how are we not just broadcasting out, but having that engage, that true engagement? No, absolutely. And, and online influences is another thing we talked um, a bit about uh, in the session. And although there are a huge amounts of uh, challenges from uh, kind of thinking through everything from how much you pay them and what kind of adverse event report training you give them, there are so many challenges. But the biggest one, really, I think what we talked about was that it's about selecting the right people to be your your influencers. And actually, if you, again, if you bring that back to the relevance and they're the right people that your audience are going to be interested in hearing from, so not just some you know, random celebrity with no relevance whatsoever, then I think you can stand by it and you can, you know, it's about, for me, it's the sort of red test, red face test, really. Is this the right thing to do? Is it of genuine help to our audience? And I think, you know, that the, the benefits of all the social media challenges and online influencers and all of all of those things that more and more you're seeing pharma using is, yes, it does come with risk, but there are actually huge benefits to everybody if if we're not completely reliant on a third party to to, to filter that message for us. And we, we should be able to control appropriately what we want to say directly. And that actually creates a really great opportunity, I think, for us all in, in, in communications and healthcare, because what it means is, to a degree, it moves us away from just being about reputation and you know, sort of, sort of nice influence behaviour to actually saying, how can us as teams directly improve the lives of patients and people across the UK? Because what we're finding is actually, if we can look at those campaigns that actually tangibly almost add 
add a really positive change to their, their lives, whatever it is, and we, we've looked at it from a sort of issues management point of view as well, then we go to the business and say, look, what we're doing as a team is not just about reputation, it's not just about behavior, but we're helping to direct the medical teams, we're helping to direct um, some other areas of the business on how they should be actually doing things and actually almost be like an ethical compass for the business. Just very quickly, last question to all three of you, just a quick answer. In terms of looking to the future, how is this whole, you know, is, is there going to be a change to the, to the creative process? Um, you know, Charlotte, let's start with you. It's, it's, I think there's so much that's, that's going to probably have to change. I think for me, the biggest thing comes down to simplicity. We're living in a world now where there's more and more information out there and, and getting cut through is, is so difficult and you're also seeing other more consumer um, organisations sort of encroaching really on the territory that was kind of traditionally healthcare even things like the uh, um, you know IKEA campaign and all sorts of things are, are kind of encroaching so that very um, focused single-minded message is going to become increasingly important. David? Um, I always rally against the whole content is king approach that often creativity can fall back on. Actually, it's just about having, exactly like you said, the right message to the right audience in the right time in a way that really resonates and engages with them in a human way. Um, and I think the word creativity for us as an industry is actually probably just about doing the simpler things better. And uh, Christine, last word with you. I think that when it, when it comes to creativity, I, I like the question you asked about looking to other, or, other industries and the way other organizations do. And I think that as, a, as pharma, you know, as David said, it can be so easy to just fall back and go, oh, well, the ABPI code, we can't do that. I think that in terms of, of creativity, I think we need as a, as a function to really look and see what's being successful other places and, and bring that inspiration. You know, be curious about what's working other places. Um, be curious about why something worked and what didn't work. And, and be inspired to kind of bring it back into and, 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 and try to rally your teams. And, and I think we also talk about co-creation. So asking your teams, asking lots of other stakeholders and you still define the simple message but I think it, it's a little bit about um, just kind of looking in the unusual places. Well that's been great but uh, for now Charlotte Davis, uh, David Flynn and Christine Kelly thanks so much for joining the show and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank, Thank you very much. Thanks. In fact that uh, wraps up this first of the two episodes that we're recording at the PR Week Pharmacoms conference so thank you to all my guests who took the time to chat to us today and to the organising team at PR Week for making it happen. Uh, there will be a second episode to follow this so make sure you look out for that on your podcast feed. In the meantime we hope you've got a lot out of this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic of Pharmacoms so if you'd like to contact contribute to the discussion you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed or LinkedIn and Instagram pages which are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of iTunes and Spotify and in fact we're available on all your favourite podcast apps so just search for the C-Suite podcast and you should find us. Finally if you'd like to get in touch with the show you can do that via the contact form on the website as well or you can reach me via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye. Thank you.